You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. And it's my tremendous joy to continue to preach through the book of Isaiah this morning. So Isaiah makes his points in very poetic and descriptive ways. He doesn't pull any punches when it comes to referring to specific people, people groups, kings, or nations. And why should he? Because Isaiah is a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God. So the words he speaks are not entirely his own, but rather they bear the authority of the one who sent him and speaks through him. So I believe that God spoke through his prophets, both by the power of his spirit and through their own giftings. So Isaiah, for instance, speaks and acts differently than Ezekiel. Isaiah speaks differently than Hosea, though they were both operating around the same time. And I'm sure that Isaiah thanked God that he was not called to live out prophetic actions like Ezekiel or Hosea. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should totally take time to skim through some of the narrative parts of Ezekiel or Hosea and see how God uses them to physically model prophecy. So in Ezekiel's case, it is literally stinky, and in Hosea's case, it is scandalous. But this morning, we're going to spend time setting the stage for Isaiah's prophecy, his words, in chapters 34 and 35. So go ahead and turn there. So I'm going to walk through these chapters with some specific highlights, and then draw some application from what we find in God's word for us today. As I said, Isaiah's prophecies are really vivid and descriptive and often blunt. One of the ways that Isaiah makes his point so clear, though, is through the use of contrast. So if you're a nerd like me, then you're very familiar with the word contrast. And I don't mean dark side, light side, but in terms of like an image on a screen. So photographs, projectors like we're using, TV screens, they have an adjustment for contrast built in. So some of you are thinking, yeah, I remember hitting that button by accident one time. So simply put, contrast on a screen or in a picture makes the dark colors darker and the bright colors brighter. So the higher the contrast, the clearer you might distinguish the picture. The lower the contrast, the smoother the lines look and images can actually get a little blurry. So So think of a polar bear in a snowstorm in the Arctic. Not much contrast, except for its black nose and eyes, right? So low contrast, so you can't see it until it's too late. For the kids in here, I mean it's too late for the cuddles, right, from the hungry polar bear. Uh, But during our times of singing, if there was a lightly colored slide on the screen with maybe some white reflections or artistic touches in it, and then I used white text on top of that, Uh, you may have a little bit of difficulty reading that lyric. So here's an example. If instead, if instead we put black text on the light slide, the higher contrast enables your eye to more clearly distinguish the words, right? So be thankful for the folks who work on the computer, who labor to keep things clear for us, literally, when we gather for worship. Uh, Comedy, in many ways, also works through contrast. So many jokes are setting us up 
with an expectation, and then the punchline is a stark contrast to what we expected, right? Another example, like, purely theoretical, but if I began to dance, doing the floss or whatever, you know, that would be funny, right? Because of the contrast. David, who doesn't dance, trying to do a dance. And a lot of stand-up comedy is, is observational. It's simply observing everyday contrasts and then commenting on them. And so using contrast helps us see more clearly, even the everyday things that are right in front of us. So in this way, contrast is, is really useful, right? In the gospel, contrast is very useful. The mercy and grace of God is made much more clear and compelling when held in contrast with the consequences of sin and the justice of God against his enemies. When we see our own sin for what it is, we can more clearly see the love of God for what it is. So contrast enables clarity. So with this contrast in mind, would you stand with me as we hear from, from God's word? This is a long text, so if you need to sit, uh, feel free to. But God, may you bless the reading of your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might respond in faith and repentance by the power of your spirit. So from Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord, Yahweh, is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. And then from chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. 
and the ransomed of the Lord shall return to come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So starting at the beginning of our text, it's really clear that the Lord will have judgment against his enemies. And then the redeemed and ransomed people of God will have cause to rejoice. So when we're reading over long stretches of texts like this, it's helpful to look at the big picture before narrowing down. And over the last several weeks, we've seen a really similar pattern play out in Isaiah's words to the nation of Judah. So as Ricky mentioned two weeks ago, God wants us to trust him more than anything else, more than any other power, more than any other nation, or in, uh, in the case of Judah especially, more than any other nation around. God has the power to save. So Isaiah calls us to embrace the reality of God's rule. And then as Chris pointed out last week, God has given us a vision of what it looks like to trust him. He's given us a hope that has the power to sustain us through seasons where we may be tempted not to trust him. But just in case the word from chapter 33 didn't do the job, Isaiah uses a harsh contrast here in chapter 34 as the oracle continues. So if the beauty of the far country isn't quite clear enough for you, consider the catastrophic description of land inhabited by God's enemies. So the context for chapter 34 is that the Lord will have judgment on his enemies. It's important to recognize that this summons, though, uh, at the beginning of chapter 34, it's not the first word, right? Isaiah didn't just jump up on a soapbox and proceed directly to, the mountains will erode by the river of blood that flows from Yahweh's enemies. All you nations will be judged. No, God's judgment is not the first word to the nations. Rather, first, we heard just last week from chapter 33, A sin has kept us from the standard of God's law, and yet God promises in chapter 33, verse 24, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. God has invited us to dwell with him in a land characterized by his forgiveness, something that he alone can do that we can't do. So before God announces judgment, he makes plain the gospel. The world is broken by our sin. We cannot measure up to God's standard of beauty and peace. But with Yahweh, there is forgiveness. It's only after this announcement that God calls the unbelieving nations to himself and says, here are the consequences. So if I might drop a little note of application a little early. What might this mean for how we share the gospel in our post-Christian America? Where do we begin when we're telling people about Jesus? On the one hand, it's really clear that God's judgment is an active thing. I mean, Al Mohler hinted at this as much in his words against uh, the things happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. If you don't know what I'm referring to, that's a whole other conversation. But suffice it to say that even God's people are not immune from the consequences of sin. As easy as it may be in some contexts to start with, the impending reality of God's judgment on his enemies, consider maybe how to balance the contrast. 
So for example, uh, consider starting with, you know, this world isn't really functioning how it's supposed to. And deep down, don't you feel that? Don't you feel that things are off, at least a little bit, if not way off? That's because God designed us to function in beautiful, loving relationships with him and other people. And he wants to bring things back to that restored place. The beauty of what God intends for his creation is a very stark contrast to the brokenness that we experience and participate in. And so in that progression of ideas, I haven't even hinted at judgment yet, but I'm building a bridge with the hearer through contrast that discuss Jesus. Isaiah does not mince his words, however, when describing the judgment of God against his enemies. So look at verses 8 through 10. Note the depth of destruction here. We didn't read these verses just a moment ago. They're even heavier. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. That's heavy. (laughs) This description in conjunction with verse 3 For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. This language made me think of a day that we remembered at the beginning of this month. On June 6, 1944, thousands of young men were given over to slaughter on the beaches of France. And we were all thankful for their sacrifice that they made that day. So the movie, Saving Private Ryan, sought to recapture the shock and fury of that day and other events, both real and fictional, from World War II. So the the image of the beach on D-Day, with bodies left on the sand, with the water tinted red, with the cries of the wounded and dying, that's actually not too far off from what Isaiah is describing for God's enemies. In this chapter, Isaiah refers pretty specifically to the destruction of Edom. So, who is Edom? The short answer is uh, the descendants of Esau, the hairy, hungry hunter who was twin brother to Jacob. So, the Jacob whose name would be changed to Israel. And through Jacob's family, the messianic line would continue. So, Esau's family headed over here, as you can see on the map. They're on the other side of the Dead Sea from Israel and Judah and south of both. So not a huge plot of land, but still a decent-sized people group for this area. But God's people had a significant issue with Edom, however. Because back when the unified nation of Israel requested to pass through Edom, just to pass through on their way home, in Numbers 20, uh, Edom denied to let them through. So we see political struggles like this pretty much daily right now. But in this case, it's much bigger than one tribe blocking another tribe's path. This is a group of people denying God's people passage. So in a sense, they're seeking to deny salvation to the rest of the world. Because remember, God promised to bless the whole world 
through Abraham. And then here's one branch of Abraham's children blocking the other on a grudge. What happens in this prophetic text, though, in Isaiah, is that Edom typifies the whole world. So Edom is a type of every enemy of God. So when Isaiah pronounces what God would do to Edom, he's pronouncing what will happen to all of those who thwart the plans God has for his people. On the one hand, that should make those of us who are God's children feel pretty good. He's for us. Who can be against us? On the other hand, on the other hand it should cause us to pause and ask, have we warned those who may be Edom and don't know it? There's another layer to the typology here, too. King David was the only Israelite king to subdue Edom. Because when Solomon came up right after David, Edom went right back to being rebellious and unwieldy. So in Ezekiel, chapter 34 and 35, the prophet foresees the coming Davidic Messiah as the only one who can subdue Edom. So the soon coming king will rout Edom, just as his father David conquered Edom. So here in this text, Edom represents all the enemies of God. David conquered Edom. The Messiah from the line of David will conquer every Edom. Another way in which Jesus, our Messiah, is the new and better David. So enemies of God are those who think they can achieve godhood, those who can be their own masters. Because Edom sought to go its own way according to its own power. And if, if God is sovereign, as we have sung and Isaiah has been saying, then we should probably consider the logical conclusion of figuring things out in our own power. And there are a couple ways you can frame this. So one is... What we embrace now is what we will have then. Chris reminded us last week that we sometimes don't realize that all we need is God until God is all we have. But what a blessing when we embrace this truth before things are stripped away. And then G.K. Beale has written a, a book that unpacks this next idea, which is a, a theology of idolatry, basically. What we worship, we become for our ruin or our restoration. There are two trajectories, as we see in our text this morning, too. In a similar way, James K. Smith has argued that you are what you love. If you love or worship the things of this world, chapter 34 describes the end result. Now, each of these little phrases illustrates contrast. The contrasting trajectories, the enemies of God and the people of God. And this text also forces us to ask the question, what, what does the Lord's sword look like? So in verses 6 and 7, they begin to describe the sword of the Lord. And this is definitely a post-apocalyptic landscape. It's desolate, like a volcanic wasteland. So have you seen the pics from Guatemala? Have you seen the pics from Hawaii from the recent eruptions? Or have you gotten caught up in any of these recent movies or TV shows that take place in post-apocalyptic landscapes and scenarios? The language here in chapter 34 describes something very much like Mordor, ash, rot, darkness, 
and death. Hopefully you watched Lord of the Rings after the tease at the end of last week's message. Something that John Oswald, one of the commentators, points out on this particular passage, he sees the contrast here between God's power and the power of humanity. So Oswald argues that the end result of the relentless quest for knowledge that begins in the birth of humanity, that the end result is the capacity to destroy not only ourselves, but our whole natural system as well. What he's observing is that with all the power and ingenuity of humanity, the most powerful development at this point in history is the capacity to make a nuclear bomb. Not the eradication of poverty or the abolition of human slavery or the abolition of fatherlessness. Humanity, in its own power, seeks to control nuclear weapons that could make this picture in Isaiah a reality in our lifetime. So all of humanity longs for ultimate cosmic power for the post-apocalyptic living space. So maybe the Lord's sword looks like a mushroom cloud. In this specific case, though, here in Isaiah, as Isaiah preaches to the people of Judah, the sword of the Lord will very soon look a lot like Babylon. He will use Babylon to decimate Assyria to the point that the Assyrian people are completely absorbed. The Lord can use any sword of his choosing. So, why trust the nations? That's been the point of this huge section of Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz and Hezekiah. Why are you guys trusting these other nations? I'm asking you, says the Lord, since you belong to me, to trust me. No nation, even the strongest nation ever, is stronger than me. The strongest nations around, they're just, they're like Edom. And if they have their way and the sin in their hearts has free reign, this apocalyptic wasteland is no longer hyperbole, no longer exaggeration. It will be reality. So one of our uh, church family members was stationed in Jordan just a few months ago, and I got a chance to talk about that with him a few weeks ago, and we looked at Google Maps, kind of looking at the area, and several things were very clear. First, I was actually reminded how little we can trust in the nations. Because from the time of Isaiah, when he was writing, until this very minute, there are factions and changing alliances and important diplomatic moments on this exact same landscape in every generation. So the covenant people of God then, located in Judah, and the covenant people of God now, located all around the globe, have been tempted in every generation to put their hope in chariots and horses, to put their hope in aircraft and oil, to put their hope in nuclear capability. The same word that God speaks through Isaiah to Judah is the unchanging word that he speaks to us. Trust him over and above all of it. The second thing I thought about as we were looking at this area, on Google Maps especially, is that this map that we've been using is pretty accurate. There is nothing out there in this desert area so it's why ISIS can function in relative obscurity, because nobody wants to go where there's a skull and crossbones, right? Once you get away from a water source, and you can see this if you look at it on Google Earth, it is super barren, like immediately. And yet, these countries of Jordan and Syria, they continue to occupy in these, in these places. So when Isaiah refers to wastes, to lands that can't sustain life, many of the original hearers 
they would have had these desert areas in mind. As Isaiah describes the various woe article, oracles against the nations, the hearers would have had certain areas in mind. They would have known what he was talking about. So when I, Isaiah goes to the next step and describes a barrenness that is beyond what they already know, he describes a landscape that's even less hospitable. So here, here's an interesting note. You may have caught this as we read through the text. There's a line you may recognize even in the ESV, the translation we typically preach from. The skies roll up like a scroll. So this is from the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, right? The hymn writer, then, is intentionally drawing from this text. So now, I've generally imagined that this is a poetic line that refers to the beautiful clouds on a blue sky day like this. The clouds just kind of roll back, and we see the glory of the Lord. Uh, In studying this text, however, I've had my mind blown. Because the writer of this hymn, Horatio Spafford, he wants us to remember that when the stars die and the heavens rot, and the sky is literally falling to pieces in God's judgment on his enemies, it is well with the soul of those who are his. So the backdrop of this one line of text and this beautiful song is actually a terrible description of death and destruction. And the final line of the hymn quotes from Revelation 22.20. At the end of God's judgment, John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In verses 11 and following of chapter 34, we get the end result, the ultimate trajectory of human sinfulness. And in the ESV, we have these words confusion and emptiness. These same Hebrew words are translated formless and void in Genesis 1 purposelessness, meaninglessness. Apart from a relationship of love and fellowship with the creator, the creation drifts, aimless, purposeless, and empty. Humanity in all its power and ingenuity fights for the means to destroy every living thing on the planet to ensure our safety, Uh, but we ultimately ruin everything we touch. Because of the curse of sin. But your desert can be turned into a garden. The promises of God for his enemies and for his children will come to pass because of his faithfulness through his Messiah. Chapter 34 illustrates the promises of God for his enemies. And chapter 35 reflects and emphasizes things we just heard last week in chapter 33. The redeemed people of God have cause to rejoice. Indeed, all of creation rejoices as things are made right. So one of the reasons that Isaiah describes creation itself responding to God and God's people here in chapter 35 is because the curse of sin extends beyond the brokenness that it causes in our relationships with each other and with God. All of creation longs for the renewal promised in the gospel. So chapter 35 is a reminder for the people of Judah hearing hearing Isaiah's words and a reminder for us, generations later, that God will keep his promises. The broken parts of the created order will be made right, even as God's people rejoice at his return, nature itself will rejoice. And chapter 35 also contains a pretty clear exodus motif. The desert that's described here 
Uh, it may be the land of Judah itself. It may be the barren desert uh, between Syria and Israel, where the people will travel on their journey home from exile, uh, from Assyria, and then later from Babylon. It's most likely, though, a type. Just like Edom was a type and a stand-in for all the enemies of God, the desert here is the land where God's people are, which ultimately will be the whole new heavens and new earth. But for the first hearers, though, it would immediately remind them of the exodus. The lands where God's people wandered miraculously supported them. The manna, the fowl, the rock that poured forth water. And in the desert, they literally saw the glory, the chabod of God. That's the Hebrew word. I like to say that to clear my throat. He manifested as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to guide them and remind them of his protection. So the journeying described here in this chapter, it gives the original hearers peace as they remember what God had already done in the Exodus, even as they look forward to what God will do when he makes things right. And both these chapters as well are examples of Hebrew poetry. Uh, So when you're looking at them in in your Bibles, you'll see that they're framed differently. It's not a paragraph. It looks like poetry. But be sure that you catch that Hebrew poetry rhymes thoughts rather than rhyming syllables. And sometimes we kind of lose this when we're reading it in English. We read the rhyming thoughts and think, oh, that's redundant or repetitive. But rather in Hebrew, when you hear the thought repeated, it's like turning the facet of a jewel and seeing yet another perspective. It makes it more full. This entire chapter vividly illustrates in contrast with chapter 34, that the world is restored and saved by God's work. So hear these verses again. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Joy is always a byproduct of the presence of God in his world. Joy is always a byproduct of the presence of God in his world. So they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. As I mentioned, this connects the original hearers to the Exodus. But how do we see God? How do we see his majesty? Here from Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And from 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 35 verse 4 contains the powerful reminder that he will come and save you. Let the truth that he will come be a source of physical and spiritual strength. Let your actions and your thoughts be shaped by this coming reality. In light of this, Isaiah says, strengthen your hands and knees. Get to the work God has prepared for you. And let not your heart be troubled. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. So look again at verses 5 through 7. I love this section in chapter 35. So first century Christians probably recognized immediately the connection between this vision and the ministry and miracles of Jesus. Because indeed, Jesus was the first fruits of what God has in store to redeem all of humanity. The kingdom of God, the true Zion, was inaugurated in Jesus, will find its consummation when Jesus returns. But look at this, eyes. Not only did Jesus physically heal the blind, he also opened the eyes of the spiritually blind to see the glory of God in the face of the Son. Ears. Not only did Jesus physically heal the deaf, he gave ears to hear the good news of God's desire to show love for the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The lame. Not only did Jesus physically heal the lame and infirm. He promised the helper, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in those who profess faith in Jesus. And this helper makes our hearts alive and gives us gifts and sustenance to go and do more than we ever could apart from him. And the mute. Not only did Jesus physically give voice to the mute, he gives us all reasons to break our silence in praise of God's power. So here again, we see these contrasts, right? Blindness and sight, deafness and hearing, lameness and leaping for joy, muteness and singing. And this contrast, I like this one. The burning sand shall become a pool. So you, you know what this feels like, right? So you're going to the beach in the summer and you're walking down across the sand trying to drag all the chairs and towels and you take your flip-flops off and the sand is like 212 degrees and you can almost feel the skin melting off your feet so you start walking faster and then you drop the stuff as you get to the edge of where the tide just went out and you take a step into the wet sand and then two steps into the pool of water all the burning goes away. So take that moment, multiply it exponentially all of God's people who have been walking on burning sand for what feels like forever will have the reality of stepping into the pool. And that rest will actually be forever. In verse 8, we see the highway. This is actually literal. Uh, when we read this here in the Raleigh suburbs, because honestly, that's what we are, uh, we see highway and think of I-40 or the Beltline, or maybe 401 or 55, but not 210. The, the term here is not referring to roads like that, but rather a pathway that is actually lifted up, raised above the countryside, visible to everybody around, and unmistakable in its trajectory. 
This description of a high way is an example of what Alec Montier notes, that the Lord never reduces his standards to match the weaknesses of his people. He raises his people to the height of his standards. The way is holy because of those who walk there, not because of some intrinsic value of the pathway. Rather, God makes his people holy. So walk in holiness. Let God raise you as you humble yourself. So this pathway that God's prepared for us through his Messiah, his son Jesus, it's an invitation to come home to God, to be fully restored to his image. Verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So they shall obtain, or you could translate this, gladness and joy shall overtake them. As we walk the path of God's people, following Jesus as his disciples, joy will overtake us. And here we have that final contrast in this text. Gladness and joy, sorrow and sighing. There are many of God's people, both in Isaiah's time and now, whose lives are characterized by more sorrow and sighing than gladness and joy. But hear me, there is a time coming when joy will overtake us. You don't have to manufacture it. It will overtake you. Because his promises are true. And in some ways, the depth of our sorrows make the heights of our joy even more amazing in the contrast. The promises of God for his enemies and for his people will come to pass because of the faithfulness of his Messiah. So chapter 34 describes the promises of God for his enemies. So who are God's enemies? Right? God's enemies are those who do not respond in faith and repentance to his free offer of love and forgiveness. God's enemies are those who actively work against God's plan for his creation. And if God's promises for his enemies come to pass through his Messiah, what does the Messiah do for God's enemies? Well, first, he loves them. Jesus very clearly and consistently loves his enemies and even commands us to love our enemies and pray for them. So please don't confuse what the Messiah does and what we are to do, though, right? We are not the Messiah. We are his disciples. We are to do as he has taught. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies because the Messiah will also judge them. He will judge. It's a promise. And we can trust our perfectly loving and perfectly just God to act perfectly even when we can't fully comprehend what that means. But what are the promises of God for his children? Well, first, who are God's children? Those who respond in repentance and faith to the good news of what Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you trust that his work on your behalf and his death in your place has reconciled you to God, you are a child of God. So Isaiah is writing about us. In chapter 35. And what does the Messiah do for God's children? 
he will come and save you. He saves you from ultimate death, and he also saves you from the sting of imminent death. He saves you from the constant curse of sin's brokenness by knitting you into a body of which he is the head, into a family that spans the globe and many generations. So with the contrast of this text, God has given us clarity. Surely there's a lot of gray in the world to navigate, but in this text, things are pretty light and dark. You're either an enemy of God or a child of God in the end, and you follow that trajectory every moment. So if you are an enemy of God, let me extend to you this opportunity to repent. Turn from the path you're on now. Walk the way of holiness, the path that Jesus the Messiah laid out for us. He showed us how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Trust in Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, as the Lord of Lords, and as your King. Because Jesus was killed in your place, and he was raised to life as proof of God's redemptive work and a guarantee of what's to come. A guarantee of what's described here in Isaiah 35. And what I need you to hear is that the very moment that you turn to Jesus, you are no longer God's enemy. You are hidden in the cleft of the rock. You are hidden in Jesus Christ. You are adopted into God's family. If you're a child of God, already remember that we are promised that he will come and save us. That although this life is fraught with frustration and difficulty and outright suffering, ultimately it is and will be well with us. As we're reminded in the new hymn that we've sung here, uh, Christ the sure and steady anchor, there's a line that goes, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. There's a brilliant contrast between the brokenness of the world and the suffering that we endure, and then the beauty of God's salvation of his people. So may this contrast give you clarity, and may it be well with your soul. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and the power contained therein. We pray that you would indeed give all of us eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, energy to leap, and voices to sing. We pray that you would be glorified as we give on this last Sunday of the month toward benevolence. May our offerings be a blessing to the people of our community who have needs that arise. We thank you that you have given to us, your people, abundantly, more than we can ask or imagine. So help us to give abundantly, more than we even imagine is possible, for the benefit of your people and the glory of your kingdom. We love you and are grateful that you have loved us first and adopted us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.